It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning, as always. And uh, it's, a, it's an unusual day. I mean, we've had a uh, time change. Uh, we've, we've fallen back. Uh, and so a lot of us are probably a little bit out of whack. Probably not as much as me, because I just got back from Ohio, which is on Eastern Standard Time now. It was on Eastern Daylight Time. So I'm either four hours ahead of you, or three hours ahead of you, or I'm probably somewhere even not even in that range either, because I'm all messed up. But I don't know about you, uh, but this is always a jarring time of year. But it's also a momentous occasion. Last week we had not only Halloween, but that date in history, October 31st, marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Now this coming Saturday we also have Veterans Day, which is the 99th anniversary of Armistice Day, which marked the end of World War I. And since then has, has been a day to, to celebrate and mem, you know, remember our veterans and those who have served in the armed forces of the military. So we're in between two very significant dates. And then the day after Halloween, uh, November 1st, is All Saints Day. But this year, it was Houston Astros Day. <laughs> because in Game 7 of the World Series, they took home the title as World Series champions. And that was for the first time ever in their 56-year franchise history. And that was a great, exciting series. And I'm always happy to see the two top teams go to Game 7 because that, you know, when it's a blowout, it's kind of no fun. But when they get that far, both of them, you know that they both really deserve to be there. And uh, my cousin, just a couple weeks ago, he, he's from Southern California, so of course he was pulling for the Dodgers, but he said he hoped that the Yankees would make it because then that would be a more exciting series against his mighty Dodgers. But the Astros, they didn't disappoint. And they were all in, weren't they? And how many home runs can there be in one World Series? This year shattered the record with 22 home runs in the same World Series. That was amazing. Now, and speaking of all-in, how about the city of Houston? You know, they've got the, their sign, Houston Strong. They were all-in because they canceled school this past Friday so that the whole city could celebrate in that parade. And that couldn't have come at a better time for that city, coming on the, the wake of the devastation of Hurricane Harvey. It was a great boost for them. And to top it all off with timing, how about Astro shortstop Carlos Correa, proposing to his girlfriend, Daniela Rodriguez, Miss Texas 2016, right after Game 7 in the aftermath of the celebration. You know, talking about all-in. How about that? That's a real, real neat story. So you might be wondering, how is Glenn going to tie in the World Series, Veterans Day, marriage, and reform Christianity? I'm glad you asked. You see... When I think about being all in, I think about the military. And I also think about sports. Now, let's start with sports. Certainly, we know that there's nothing taken more seriously than sports. And I don't care if it's professional or high school or city rec league or little league. You got to take it seriously. And you have to go all in because you've got to practice every day for several hours a day. It has to be what you think about when you wake up in the morning and before you go to bed at night. And, and so it affects your sleep patterns, it affects your diet, and even what other activities you can and can't do. You can't even have dinner with your family or with your boyfriend or girlfriend because you've got to have dinner with the team, especially the night before a game. 
And hey, I'm not knocking it. I get it. You got to go all in. Because if you don't, well, you don't make the team. And likewise, and probably even more so with the military, it takes over every aspect of your life. When you join the military, your life fundamentally changes, both your life and your lifestyle. They tell you what to eat. They tell you what to wear, where to live, when to sleep, how long to sleep, what to do, and even your hairstyle. In fact, if you're a guy... One of your first stops when you first join the military is the barber. And they buzz your hair down to the style of a tennis ball. It didn't matter if you had these lovely locks that were down to your shoulders or if your hairline was already kind of heading that way. Forget about it. Goodbye to who you were and even what you looked like before. And, and I just have to say, if that's not motivation to be all in with something, I don't know what is. Because for me, that first haircut was the point of no return. Because you couldn't get that haircut, look like a tennis ball, and then go back home and say to your family and friends, well, I, I just couldn't hack it, I couldn't make it. Man, you've got you to commit for there, at that point. You've got to take it seriously. You have to go all in. Now, at least you have to be all in for your term of enlistment or your service obligation because if you're not, you pay a steep price. You get court-martialed. There were times in, in, in history when you deserted your obligation, you, you faced the firing squad. You see, here's the thing about being an athlete or being in the military. It marks you and it changes you. It becomes self-evident. You can tell a person who's an athlete. You can tell a person who is in the military. Now, if those analogies don't work for you, then here's another one. The same is true for our relationships. The same is true for marriage, for parenting. Because even if you think you know what you're getting into when you get married or when you're going to have a child or when you're going to have a grandchild, <laughs> it's going to fundamentally change your life, and dramatically so. Once you get married, you're never going to be known as that single guy or single gal again, even if you don't stay married. You know what I mean? And, you know, if you're a parent, you're going to forever be known as a mother or a father. Like being an athlete or a soldier or an airman or a marine or a sailor, <laughs> you can tell. It changes you. It becomes self-evident. And you have to go all in. You have to go all in in your marriage. You have to go all in with your kids. Because if you don't, it gets really, really messy. It's a disaster. Because all of these things, they take hard work and dedication and commitment. And it's a battle. A very tough fight. Sometimes for our very lives. And now, someone might wonder, should he be referring to marriage and parenting like that? But if you are married or if you are a parent, then you know that I speak rightly. It's tough out there. It's not easy. And I don't know about you, but I don't know of any cases where someone woke up one day inadvertently and then suddenly that morning discovered that they were a varsity athlete. Or that one day, they just unbeknownst to them, everything was one way, and then they woke up and they were a soldier in the army. 
Now, sleep deprivation may make you feel that way when, until you get your first cup of coffee, but it's not going to take you by surprise. You're not going to wake up one, married, one day and, and wonder, how did I accidentally get married? At least I hope not, right? Don't go too far with that, right? Or, or that I accidentally had a baby. It's not going to take you by surprise. But whether we know it or not, we're also in a spiritual fight for our lives. But the difference here is that we may not really know it. We may not realize it. I'm, I'm betting that some of us don't even notice this. And it can take us by surprise. Now, as far as what the Bible says about this, we're going to be exploring a passage that's going to be familiar to many of us. It's the parable of the sower and the seed. And while it's popular and simple, it carries with it many different meanings. Now, one of them speaks directly to this spiritual fight for our lives and this struggle that we all face. So if you'll join me this morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 8, and we're going to be reading from uh, verses 1 through 15. So that's Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. So if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles or on your devices, that's Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up, and it choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy, and when they hear it, they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So 
this is a popular parable. Often it is, is associated with evangelism about going out and casting seeds out there and, and spreading the gospel and the word of God because that's what the seed is here. It's the word of God. It's the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But what we don't often see in this parable is that there's some setup verses before it. It talks about the fact that he had been kind of preaching in village and town after town, and he was being supported by women, three of whom had been afflicted by demons. They were victims of spiritual warfare. And so it's no secret then, or it's not kind of an accident that this parable comes right after that. And this parable, it seems popular to us now, but it seemed popular to them as well because he didn't just do it one time. and It's the one podcast date. You'll have to download it and then you'll miss it if you don't hear it otherwise. He told it wherever he went because he was talking about the kingdom of God. He was talking about three different levels of faith. He was talking about the people who hear the word, but then the devil snatches it away from them, and they don't believe it. And then he was talking about people who were like rocks, or were grown up among thorns, where they believed it at first, but they didn't mature. They fell away because of the worries of this life, or because of times of testing. And then that third area, the good soil, the people who receive the word and retain it and persevere and produce a crop. We're talking here about faith, levels of this faith. And we're talking specifically at the end with the good soil about deep faith. We're talking about people who went all in. Now, in the previous series, Who Me, Brad referred to his exploration of the life of Gideon and the book of Judges as a deep dive into Scripture. But this morning, we're talking about a deep dive into faith, because that's what Jesus calls us to. So that makes us ask the question, what keeps us, then, from going deep with our faith? What keeps us from going all in with Jesus? And it's this cold war that we fight. In theology, we refer to that as spiritual warfare. Now, you may have never heard of this parable associated in this way with spiritual warfare before, but it's definitely there. First of all, you have the birds that come and eat the seed. Jesus says himself, that's the devil who comes and snatches away the gospel from people's hearts. Then there are the rocks that prevent the gospel from taking root. Jesus refers to people going through a time of testing. And then Jesus refers, too, to thorns. These are the things that choke the life out of the believer as they grow up in Christ. That's spiritual warfare. But rather than being an all-out melee or an artillery barrage or a hellfire missile attack, the methods of this warfare are subtle. So much so that we hardly even notice it's happening. In fact, most of the time, I would bet that we don't notice it at all. Now, Paul refers to this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, that brings to mind this idea of Cold War. And, And 
Historically, there was a Cold War in our history that waged between the North Atlantic uh, treaty organization countries, um, you know, the United States and all its allies, against the, the Soviet Union and all of its allies, the Soviet bloc nations. It's that period between World War II and the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, today, there are probably whole generations, they don't identify with this period of history at all. But I'll bet there's people right here in this room who remember the old duck and cover drills during school, preparing for a possible nuclear strike. And for many of us, we grew up with this knowledge that every day could be our last because we could be vaporized in an, ins- uh, in an instant by, by these nuclear weapons. And I remember the day uh, when the Soviets inadvertently shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007 in 1983. I remember it well because my mother, she gathered up my brother and I, and she started to pray frantically, and she was crying. And we're like, what's going on? And then later that night, we saw it on the news that the the Russians had shot down this commercial airliner going from New York City to Seoul, Korea. And we thought, that's it. We're all going to die. It's going to be a war, all-out war. This is going to be it. That was a scary time. But you know what happened? Nothing. And decade after decade, there seemed to be this rhetoric. There seemed to be threat after threat. But with the exception of a couple of isolated international incidents, it was all handled, you know, basically, fortunately, diplomatically, and with cooler heads prevailing. So nothing really ever happened, so to speak. There was no war, as it were. Now today, we could probably relate that to North Korea. Or even still to Russia, the former power be behind the old Soviet Union. Because let me ask this question, how many of us really, I mean really, lose sleep over the fact that Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons and that he test fires missiles for sport? Anybody? Anybody say, I, that's, I, I was up all night thinking about that. How about those who say, I'm on medication because of my anxiety over the fact that there are literally thousands of suitcase bombs and stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons in Russia? Anyone say, yeah, that's me. have a prescription for that. Because the truth is, we probably are more concerned about kneeling at the uh, NFL games or about Trump's Twitter account. And and, and let's be honest, we're probably more worried than even still about the flat tire or about the failing water heater or the unexpected bill that just arrived or even what's for dinner tonight. And I have to warn you that this morning it's a guarantee that I'm going to be stepping on some toes and offending some folks. And this morning, I'm not going to be talking to or focusing, to people, focusing on people who haven't accepted Jesus. They don't, haven't made a decision about who he is or about the gospel of Christ. The, they haven't accepted the good news that even though that we, because of our sin, are deserving of eternal punishment and death, that God has made a way to, for us to be connected to him forever in paradise through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, this morning, I'm not going to be focusing on those folks. I'm going to be focusing on the people who have decided who Jesus is, and they believe in him, and they've made a choice to follow him. People who, for lack of a better way to describe it today, go to church. 
Because the problem is that there are several people who identify with Christ, who attend church on Sundays, sometimes regularly, whose relationship with Christ is in jeopardy. Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about salvation. We come to faith in Jesus Christ. That seals the deal for our salvation. But as far as the quality and the depth of our faith and our relationship with him here, right here in this life, that's in jeopardy. I'm talking about the relationship that you have with him right now. Is it casual? Or is it more like an acquaintance? Is it not like a family member at all? Not like having a close friend, but someone that you run into every now and then. Maybe every week. Maybe it's the person you run into at the coffee shop every week. Or at the gym every week. Maybe it's somebody that you run into almost every day. Like your co-workers or your classmates. Or other people that are in your life. It might be your boss. You may work together and cooperate with them. But is there really a strong relationship there? Now for your boss, you might be very hardworking and even loyal. But let's face it, at the end of the day, you only do it because you're supposed to. Nothing about you fundamentally changes. Nothing marks you as being connected to them apart from the affiliation that you have with them because you're supposed to. You're not all in, in other words. And what I've described is the way that many people relate to God and to the church. Sure, there have been sightings of them around God stuff and around the Christian culture. But when it comes right down to it, how loyal are they? How much fidelity is there between them and between Jesus? And perhaps I'm hitting close to the mark. And before I go too far, you should know that this is hitting me right between the eyes. Because sometimes I need to be reminded that what it means to be all in with Jesus Because I have to ask myself the question, is what I'm doing all about me? Or is it because of my love for him? Is it my love for Jesus and for the gospel? Sure, there'll be times when we can be friendly and cordial, but when it comes down to it, when it gets hard, am I there? Would I go and visit him in the hospital? Would he come see me? Would I cancel my plans for him? Would I let my life be interrupted for him? Can I say that I'm all in? And I don't know where you're at today or what you might be going through, but I do know this, that life is tough. And there are daily battles that we face every day. But here's the problem I see. Is it... For all the physical battles that we're in every day, we miss and we don't even realize that we're in a spiritual battle for our very lives. And what happens to us when we don't go all in with our faith, when we don't dive deep with our faith? I don't want to find out, and I hope you don't either. And that brings us to the big idea this morning, for your notes, that our eternal future depends on the depth of our faith. We need to go all in with Jesus. Living like we've been changed is the evidence of that deep faith. And let me repeat that. Our eternal future depends on the depth of our faith. And we need to go all in with Jesus. And living like we've been changed, that's the evidence of deep faith. Earlier I mentioned the examples of athletes and and people in the military 
and to family relationships. And intuitively, we all know that a sports team that doesn't go all in, it's not very successful. It's not going to be the World Series champions, champion team. And wouldn't we all be terrified if we knew that the servicemen and women in the military were casual and half-hearted about their service? That they weren't really dedicated or committed to what they do? That would be a disaster. It would be terrifying. Now, we definitely see the harm brought into this world every day by people who don't take their marital or their parenting commitments seriously. Because we know that athletic success and military dominance and marital health and the health and wealth and and well-being of the next generation depends wholly on the depth of the dedication and the commitment that are offered to them. They require going all in. And the same is true for our spiritual lives and eternity, and even more so. The strength and quality of our spiritual health depends on deep faith. It requires going all in with Jesus, like being easily identified as an athlete or as a, as a marine. We ought to also, likewise, be identified as wholehearted followers of Jesus. We ought to live like we've been changed. And that's what the parable is telling us. And I'd like to spend the balance of this morning on on telling us about what keeps us from that deep faith and some tips about how to keep our heads among us when we, we were fighting this battle, this spiritual fight for our lives. But to do that, we need to go back to the nature of the problem. You see, in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they were tempted in the Garden of Eden. Now, while it seems simple, all over this apple that they weren't supposed to eat, it's really more subtle and deeper than that. It was a cold war, even then. And in the background, there were three major issues that they faced that we all now face as a result. And they were the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And the story ended badly for them, and as a result, it ended badly for all of us. They succumbed to these forces, and they broke their trust in God. And incidentally, Jesus would come along thousands of years later, and he would face these same forces when he was tempted in the desert during his 40 days of fasting. Only he remained resolute, and he stood firm against the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And these are the same forces that he talks about in the parable of the sower and the seed. The same temptations that even now take our eyes off of God, often without us even realizing it's happening. It says in the parable, those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Jesus is talking about people who initially received the gospel, but who fall out of step with faith. Why? Because of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And here's how this shows up in this parable, and here how it shows up in our lives. The three enemies to deep faith, it kind of restated, are adversity, busyness, and success. Adversity, busyness, and success. Now, the first one, adversity, it's, it's inevitable. 
Things go wrong. Bad things happen. People turn on us or betray us. Relationships struggle. New phases of life and new realities, they stretch us. And simply put, things don't always go our way. When challenges come, how do we respond then? Jesus compares some of us to rocky soil. When the seed fell on it, there are some initial movement, some initial growth. They received the gospel with joy. But after a period of testing, they fell away. And here's what we know, and here's how we experience this. Life doesn't always tickle. Sometimes it stings. And sometimes it's really, really hard. And when those hard times come, it's hard to receive it well. In fact, in hard times, it's not uncommon for us to shake our fists at God and agonize. We may even say, that's it, God, I'm done with you. Now, if that, that's you, if that's ever happened to you or if that's happening to you right now, I want to assure you that that's not abnormal. That's not uncommon. But the difference that Jesus is talking about in the parable is people who make good on those threats and those ultimatums to God. When they say, hey, God, I'm done with you, they mean it. They literally walk away. And Jesus explains that's who he's talking about in verse 13. When adversity comes, these people walk away. They don't pray to him. They don't rely on him. They don't turn back to him. They don't ask him for his help to get through it. They just walk away. Adversity is an enemy of our faith. And the next enemy is busyness. Now, there's some people out here who would say, oh, yeah, that's true, busyness. But there's some of us that say, that's confusing. That's a little counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense because aren't we called to be busy? Isn't a life of busyness what we're actually supposed to be as Christians? Aren't we supposed to be getting down to business and working as unto the Lord? Well, let me ask you something. Has your frenetic pace of life strengthened your relationships? Has it deepened your intimacy with the people that you love the most? How about working for the church? <laughs> that must be okay, right? No matter how busy you are, if it's for the church, it must, must be good and healthy. But working harder at our faith and for the church can also be an obstacle. You know, C.S. Lewis, he spoke about this in his novel, The Screwtape Letters. The novel is a series of letters between two demons. And we're talking about spiritual warfare here. And, and they're giving advice to each other about how to deal with their patient, the person that they're trying to keep from having a deep relationship with Jesus. And one of them writes to the other, one of the great allies at present is the church itself. You see, he, the patient, has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. In other words, going to church and going native with the Christian culture can also keep us from that deep faith in Christ if we're not doing it right. It can occupy our time and keep us so busy that we completely miss the big point. Even doing what we believe is Christian and for the church, it can take our eyes off of Christ just as easily as overtime at work or a traffic jam or planning for a major life event. Because here's the problem, and here's the deeper deeper problem with all of this, is that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing all this stuff, all this busyness 
for Jesus and for God and for the church when really we're doing it for something or someone else. Probably ourselves. You see, busyness has an effect of taking our eye off of the true center of our faith. And the last enemy to faith is success. Now, this is the real (laughs) head-scratcher. Because, wait a minute, Glenn, didn't you say that the first enemy to faith was adversity? Well, by that reasoning, then the opposite of adversity would be success. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Because if adversity means that everything is going badly for you, then the cure for that should be that everything is going awesome for you. (laughs) But ironically, success is often worse for us than adversity. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 18.25, Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, when you live in a big house or you drive a fancy car or you don't ever have to worry about money or you always get the job you want or you always get everything you want exactly when you want it, then that becomes a standard, doesn't it? You come to expect everything to go your way. And when one thing doesn't go according to your plan, your wishes, or your desires, then it's a crisis And it becomes a crisis of faith. Because for such a person, God is never good enough. No blessing is ever really a blessing. It's an expectation. And here's the deeper problem beneath all of that, whether we're talking about adversity or whether we're talking about success, is that we place our faith in our circumstances rather than in Jesus himself. Because when things go wrong in adversity, (laughs) we blame God. But when things are going awesome, we forget all about God. Success loosens our dependence on God. And it's an enemy sometimes to our faith. So what's the cure? How do we not allow this cold war, these enemies that are kind of working in the background to overtake our faith? Well, firstly, we need to know and trust in God's word. In the parable, in verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word and retain it. They hear the word and they retain it. You know, when Jesus faced temptation and he was tempted in the desert, his defense in every single case was God's word. In Matthew 4.4, when he's being tempted, Jesus answers the devil, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in every case, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes from the Holy Scriptures. What that demonstrates to us is that we can't just believe the Bible and say amen when we hear it in church. We've got to know it ourselves. Because Jesus, he quoted from it. That means he didn't just read it. (laughs) He studied it and he committed it to memory. He trusted it and he lived by it. So we must also know and trust in God's word. Hebrews 2.1 tells us that we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. 
When Jesus was tested for the second time, the devil actually played this game along with him. He quoted scripture back at him. He quoted from the Psalms. But not only did Jesus know and trust in scripture, but he also persevered. He responded that we are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Why? Because you don't test something that you trust completely. He trusted in God, and likewise, we should persevere through trust in Christ. We need to persevere through trust in Christ. Now, back to verse 15 in the parable, Jesus uses the word persevering. And the original Greek word here is actually a dative noun, and it translates exactly as with patient endurance. What that means in today's language is, and and hold on, I mean, because this is... This is important, okay? I know that's kind of technical data. I want to break it down for you. What with patient endurance means is hold on. Hold on. Stand firm. It means don't give up. Don't walk away. In adversity, hold on and trust him. In the busyness, hold on And keep your eyes focused on him. In success, hold on and praise him. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's saying, never mind the birds or the rocks or the thorns, even in adversity, even in the busyness and worries of life, even when the sun is shining on everything that you do, stand firm and keep on going. Not only is your future dependent on it, but so is that of other people around you. Hold on. Persevere in your trust in Christ. And lastly, we need to produce by living changed lives. Produced by living changed lives. Now, I started this morning by talking about athletes and military people, and both of those require discipline and conditioning, stretching themselves beyond what they thought was possible of themselves. Now, I remember back in high school the day of double-day practices where you would go in early in the morning on the weeks leading up to the first day of school, and you would practice for two hours. And then you would go home, and then later that day, you'd come back for two hours more of practice or more. And you would do that for weeks. And when I first joined the military, it wasn't double days. It was all day, every day. And in both scenarios, that was rough. It took everything you had. You had to be all in. You didn't have any other choice. And at the beginning of all that, it all seemed so painful. All I seemed to be getting out of it was being sore, and experiencing pain in places I never knew existed. But the end result was being prepared and equipped to do the work, to compete, to fight the good fight, to do the battle, to produce the great works and harvest the great benefits. I was changed. And through this change, the blessing and the fruit of the hard work and the labor was made possible. And the same is true even more so in our spiritual lives. Hebrews 12.11 tells us that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You see, when we live like we've been changed, then it changes others. It changes the world. 
And most of us would, would probably say this morning that we live changed lives because of somebody else in our lives who has changed themselves. And that's why Jesus concludes in verse 15 in the parable that those with a noble and good heart who hear the word and retain it and by persevering produce a crop. Because change is contagious. Change produces change. Now to sum it all up, the big idea this morning is that our eternal future depends on the depth of our faith. We need to go all in with Jesus. And we need to live lives like we've been changed. Not only is it the evidence of our faith, but the future of others and of our world depends on it. Now, we battle in this cold war against adversity and busyness and success by knowing and trusting in God's word, by persevering through our trust in Jesus, the person, and producing a blessing in the lives of others and of this world by living like we truly have been changed. And if we want to move into position, if we want to make a difference in this valley and in our world, we need to overcome this cold war by standing firm, going deep with our faith, and living changed lives. We need to go all in with Jesus. Let's pray.